Hi, good morning. Welcome to Medical Grand Rail. I'm Sushila Chaidarun, Endocrine Section. I have my great honor inviting our guest speaker today. Before I doing that, I'd like to introduce our newest faculty in endocrinology too. We have Andy Crawford from University of Pennsylvania, Brown University. Yep. Okay. Good. Yep. So um, today, our distinguished speaker is Dr. Sibio Inzugi. Yeah. He's a professor at Yale Medical School, and he's been there. I mean, he graduated from Harvard Medical School, got his MD degree over there, and went to Yale for his residency training and finished up his endocrine fellowship over there. He actually had four years hiatus doing internal medicine and emergency room. So you can see how Brett, and it's amazing to tell you he's still seeing patients four half days a week one day in diabetes, one day in pituitary, and two days in general endocrine. So you can see we five speaker who really had clinical experience. He's author of more than 500 publications. He's also a lecturer for almost 1,000 lectures around the world, nationally and internationally. So he's also co-chair of ADA and then American Diabetes Association and Endocrine Society of European Society of Diabetes Study um, with the position statement. So the diabetes guideline that we read 2015, the most recent one, is also he as a co-chair for the committee. So his current research interest is mainly on diabetes, insulin resistance, and cardiovascular complications. He had leadership role in several large clinical trials related to diabetes medication and cardiovascular impact. So today, he's going to give us talk on diabetes and cardiovascular outcome. Have we found the Holy Grail? Please welcome Dr. Inzuki. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Chatterin. Uh, can people hear me with the microphone? Well, um, it's been nice visiting uh, yesterday and today, your wonderful section. I uh, always enjoy coming to uh, Hanover and Lebanon. Um, I wanted to give you a, a little bit of a history lesson about the last 20 years of uh, diabetes research and as it relates to cardiovascular disease. Um, my career has been uh, in the midst of this discovery about the link between glucose and heart disease. And uh, just recently, we've uh, had some interesting uh, new discoveries in terms of the ability of endocrinologists and internists to favorably impact um, cardiovascular outcomes in patients. And I think it's, a, it's kind of an exciting journey over the last uh, uh, 20 years. So these are my disclosures. I do a fair amount of work with the uh, pharmaceutical industry to set up and conduct uh, diabetes clinical trials. So the way I've structured uh, my talk is to first look at glycemic control itself and its impact on cardiovascular outcomes. Um, we'll then review uh, the current landscape of uh, type 2 diabetes therapies, these glucose-lowering drugs. I'll talk about uh, cardiovascular safety, what we know and what we don't know about diabetes drugs, and specifically uh, focus on the 2008-2009 FDA guidance, which uh, radically changed how research is done in this field. 
And then we'll look at three specific glucose-lowering categories, two relatively new ones, the SGLT2 inhibitors and the GLP-1 receptor agonists, and an old one, the TZDs, where there's some new data. Uh, and I'll highlight the uh, positive outcomes from recent clinical trials here. And um, we'll talk about how these data, specifically the SGLT2 and the GLP-1 uh, information, is impacting clinical uh, guidelines um, because they're changing rapidly. And I think if you practice internal medicine, family practice, endocrinology, you must keep up with uh, this changing uh, landscape of uh, diabetes uh, therapies. Okay, so <clears throat> I often begin with this slide, which uh, uh, tells us a couple of important relationships between the quality of glycemic control denoted here by hemoglobin A1c and the incidence of complications. On the right, we have microvascular disease, uh, specifically retinopathy. And on the left, we have uh, macrovascular disease, uh, specifically myocardial infarction. And you can see that, obviously, the higher the A1c is, uh, the greater the complication rates are over time. But the relationship is much um, more interpretable, prettier, when you're looking at microvascular complications. There's a graded increase in risk the higher the hemoglobin A1c. And for MI, it's there, but it's not as discrete. And this has translated to what we've found in clinical trials, that when we offer tight glucose control to patients, we have a much better impact on their microvascular outcomes, i.e. preventing retinopathy, albuminuria, et cetera, than we can have on macrovascular disease. So let's look at these trials. The DCCT is type 1 diabetes. The UKPDS is type 2 diabetes. And then Accord, Advance, and VATT were all type 2 diabetes trials. And in each of these, um, the microvascular complication rates were substantially decreased by tight glucose control. So I don't think there's any question, at least in the diabetes uh, community, that the glucose hypothesis about controlling glucose, preventing retinopathy, nephropathy, and perhaps neuropathy, there's just no question about that anymore. That's what we do, right? We control glucose to prevent our patients ultimately from losing their vision, having amputations, needing to visit our friendly nephrologists, right? But when we look at the main reason for our patients to die, which is actually cardiovascular outcomes, 70% of our patients with diabetes will die of heart disease. Uh, the recent scourge is actually heart failure. Our cardiology colleagues are getting so good at preventing death around the setting of uh, ACS that many of our patients are living with damaged ventricles and ending up with <coughs> heart failure. It's the most common reason for admission in the U.S. in diabetes patients last year, heart failure. So cardiovascular complications are important, and it would be totally logical to think that if you didn't know about that epidemiology, which wasn't as pretty, it would be totally logical to say that if, if you have the major metabolic abnormality of diabetes, which is hyperglycemia, if you treat that, you should impact cardiovascular complications, which is the most important sequelae of diabetes. Um, but as you can tell how I'm leading this up, that's not what, <laughs> that's not what we see. So consistently, each of these trials, at least during the randomized component of the trials, have been neutral. And it's been one of the most frustrating aspects of diabetes research is that study after study, I mean, it got to be almost a joke at a certain point that every trial was neutral in this space. 
In fact, one trial, Accord, which was published, I believe, in 2007 or 2008, actually showed that the patients who were randomized to the tightest control, the target in Accord was a little nuts, if you ask me. It was trying to get all these older type 2 diabetes patients with heart disease or at risk for heart disease with an A1C under 6%. But it was a proof of concept because the, 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 the concept was maybe UK PDS, which only targeted uh, 7%, maybe they couldn't show an impact on cardiovascular disease because it wasn't tight enough. So you had to do this trial, which was trying to get the A1C under 6%. They actually ended up about 6.4%, which is pretty good if you ask me. But more cardiovascular mortality in the patients who were randomized to that very tight control group. So this really sent shockwaves. I mean, we can understand how things would be neutral, but now we're saying that, you know, well, we're preventing uh, a real little retinopathy, but we're causing death. And, you know, the net-net there is probably not in favor of tight glucose control. Now, the story gets more complicated. Everything in medicine is more complicated. So that in, in many of these trials, they've actually done these follow-up studies. So the, the study's over, the funding's finished, and you can't really follow the patients anymore. You can't keep them in their randomized groups. But you can call them once a year. How are you doing? Did you have a stroke? Did you have a heart attack? Are you still alive? And they've done that, as mentioned in most of these. And it's interesting that over time, if you follow people long enough, those patients that were randomized to the most, the, the tightest groups, so the, the most intensive groups, actually end up in future years having less MIs and, in some circumstances, death. And that's striking because at the end of the randomized component of the trial, the hemoglobin A1Cs coalesce, right? The tight patients get worse. The, non, the, the non-intensive patients get better. And they coalesce within one year. They all have A1Cs of about 8%. Yet there's this almost an echoing effect over time uh, that you see for both cardiovascular events as well as mortality. It's modest, though. It's about 15% relative risk reduction, but it's there. And it's just because you accumulate more events and the statistics begin to favor more intensive therapy. It's been called metabolic memory by some. I'm not sure exactly what that means. Others have used the term a legacy effect, which is probably more accurate. But something about good control at any period in your life has a ramification in future years modestly on cardiovascular uh, disease. And also when they've looked at microvascular outcomes, they see the same thing. Um, and it gets a little bit more complicated in the VADT because they had 10-year outcomes where they showed the beginning of a benefit, but by 15 years there was no benefit. Not unexpected. I mean, how long can this legacy last, right? So how do we summarize? There's probably no clear effect on cardiovascular outcomes in the short term. There may be a modest effect in the long term, but eventually that effect goes away as well. Why is this? What, 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 why is this a conundrum? It really shouldn't be. If you think about atherosclerosis, which is the main driver of these cardiovascular outcomes, right? Um, and you think about the nature of microvascular complications. They're very different disease processes, right? Athero is much more complex. It's related not only to glucose, but obviously blood pressure and lipids and inflammation and insulin resistance. And it's um, 
a little bit nuts to think that you can control glucose, particularly late in life, and have a beneficial effect on a process that takes decades. But microvascular complications, you know, there's glucose, there's blood pressure, there's probably a lot of genetics, but it's a smaller puzzle so that fixing the glucose is probably more impactful in that type of complication. So that's my view of why it's been such a struggle to show that glucose control itself, not referring to drugs yet, specific drug effects, but just glucose control, hasn't had a big uh, impact on cardiovascular outcomes. Okay, what is the landscape nowadays of cardiovascular, uh, of uh, glucose-lowering drugs, and what is their cardiovascular impact? Well, for the non-endocrinologist in the room, this is a simplistic view of type 1 diabetes, and I show it only to contrast how complex type 2 diabetes is. So I tease my pediatric colleagues. They see mostly type 1. I said, your disease is just so easy pathophysiologically. It's tough to treat. Don't get me wrong, but it's pretty easy to understand. You have beta cell destruction, autoimmune destruction. We still don't know exactly how that works, but there's no beta cells eventually, and you can't make insulin. If you can't make insulin, you have hyperglycemia. Pretty simple, right? The only treatment is insulin. Pretty simple. Look in contrast to what we understand, at least nowadays, about type 2 diabetes. There's many different defects. It's not just the pancreas. The pancreas is clearly important, but the, the money is probably here in the right-hand side, which is insulin resistance, which occurs decades before people get diabetes. And um, simply stated, if the peripheral tissues, mainly skeletal muscle, so those of you that have had um, I see some carbs on the plates. Those of you that are consuming some carbs now are actually breaking those carbs into glucose, and the glucose is entering your peripheral tissues, mainly muscle. Muscle is the skeletal muscle, specifically, is the biggest sink to postprandial glucose. That's where your glucose molecules are going now, so they can be stored as energy and, and, and used later on in the day. So the muscles are insulin resistant, so they need more insulin to get glucose inside. Simply stated, that's what's been discovered many, many years ago, that patients at risk for diabetes, pre-diabetic patients are very insulin resistant, sometimes three, four-fold the, the insulin resistance or one-third to one-fourth the insulin sensitivity, which is the opposite of normal lean individuals. And if the pancreas um, were able to make sustained hyperinsulinemia for the patient's life, then the person stays insulin resistant, but they never get diabetes. Uh, we know that's not the case, right? There's 30 million diabetic patients in the U.S., type 2s. So there's a proportion of the insulin-resistant population whose insulin secretory capacity fails over time. And the more that insulin secretion goes down, the more diabetic they are. And that's what type 2 diabetes is. There's a liver defect here. The liver is insulin sensitive. So when you ate your carbs, you secreted insulin. The first stop for insulin Good Lord put the liver right next to the pancreas, right? So the portal vein brings insulin right to the liver, shuts off glucose production because you don't need glucose production if you're eating. You needed it at 4 o'clock in the morning, but you don't need it now. And the liver is insulin resistant, so the liver won't shut off in type 2 diabetes. There's a glucagon defect. There's too much glucagon, which also stimulates hepatic glucose production. The incretin system is deranged. There are not enough incretin molecules, and the body may be resistant to incretin. Incretin is this turbocharge for the pancreas. Also suppresses glucagon, so they're all linked. The kidney is also involved, so the kidney should be 
excreting glucose at a higher rate than we see in patients with type 2 diabetes. And we'll talk a little bit about that with the SGLT2 inhibitors. And most of this is probably under the regulation or in diabetes, a dysregulation of the brain. But we're still at an infancy of our understanding about how the brain links to each of these. So I hope you agree that type 2 is more complex than type 1. And this also explains why there are so many dang drugs for type 2 diabetes. It's not just insulin, right? There's, there's many different agents. There's actually 12 now. And it's interesting that when I reflect, when I started at Yale, we had two. We had SU, sulfonylureas, and insulin. And when metformin came on the market, this is back in 1995, I'm showing my age, uh, it was a radical change in our approach because not only could you use a drug that didn't result in hypoglycemia and weight gain, but you could also, and this, is, this was a novel concept at that time, you could also use two pills in one patient. You could use sulfonylurea plus metformin and prevent them from needing insulin, at least in the near term. That was radical. That's kind of part and parcel of all we do at this point. So there are 12 drugs. There's actually more drugs to treat type 2 diabetes than to treat hypertension. And if you asked me in 1995, before metformin came out, if that were ever possible in my career, I'd say, no. We have ACEs and ARBs and CCBs and beta blockers and diuretics. And we, the, the hypertension field was so far ahead of type 2 diabetes. But when the SGLT2 inhibitors were released in 2014, uh, type 2 diabetes medications 12, blood pressure medications, classes, I'm talking about classes, uh, numbered 11. So radical change just in a period of about 20 years. So let's make it simple because there's a lot of drugs that we just don't use. I can query all the endocrinologists in the audience, but there's plenty of drugs that they're on the list. We teach about them, but if you get us in a, in a, in a room quietly and ask us privately, do we ever use those drugs, we'll say no. We may have one or two patients. These are uh, niche agents that, that we might use in selected patients. But most of us use the uh, seven standard therapies for diabetes. And these are the ones that have been endorsed by the American Diabetes Association as being the cardinal agents that we use to uh, lower glucose in type uh, 2 diabetes. We have, uh, obviously, the sulfonylureas and insulin. Those are the traditional agents uh, back in the, uh, before the 1990s. Uh, metformin reduces hepatic glucose production. Uh, the TZDs, the glitazones that have fallen into hard times but are st still have a role, I think. I'll show you some new data on this. They sensitize the muscle. And the two incretin-based therapies, uh, the GLP-1 agonists, those are injectables, and the DPP-4 inhibitors, very popular. Uh, those address the incretin defect. And the uh, latest uh, new kit on the block are the SGLT2 inhibitors, which induce glucosuria. Odd mechanism of action, but it seems to work. So let's talk about these drugs individually and how they're applied to patients. So this is the prevailing algorithm from the American Diabetes Association. And when we put this together, there wasn't a lot of data as to how to apply these medications in individual patients. So what we said was, you start with lifestyle, you then move to metformin. After metformin, you have six choices. And those are the ones that I just showed you. SUs, the two incretin-based therapies, SGLT2s, which were new, TZDs, and insulin. And you had to kind of mix and match them based on the patient characteristics. 
So if a patient had heart failure, for instance, you wouldn't use a TZD. If the patient had problems with hypoglycemia, was an electrician on ladders, you may not use, want to use insulin or sulfonylurea. If the patient wanted to lose a lot of weight and didn't mind injecting, you might use a GLP-1. But there was no data at that time, this is pre-2015, there's no data saying this is the patient characteristic that you really must use this. You couldn't channel a, a patient toward a specific drug, so you basically had to kind of individualize on your own. And moving down after dual therapy, if that didn't control glucose, you'd go to triple therapy, lots of colors, lots of drugs, and ultimately all roads lead to Rome, right? So. Um, <laughs> The patients who had further diminution in their insulin secretion capacity would need insulin, almost like a type 1 diabetes patient. They would have multiple daily injections, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All right, so what's about the safety and, and effectiveness of these drugs from a cardiovascular standpoint? So I've listed here the potential, this is before clinical trials, the potential cardiovascular pluses and minuses of these drug categories. I just want to show you two examples. The TZDs. So the TZDs did a lot of good things. They lowered insulin levels, which some epidemiologists thought was a good thing. Uh, they improved lipids. Um, they reduced CRP. How could you argue against a drug that does all those good things? You'd predict that they have a cardiovascular benefit. But we found that they increased heart failure risk because they caused sodium retention at the level of the nephron. So net-net, not quite clear. You got to do a clinical trial to figure that out. Give you another example, the GLP-1 agonist. So you lose weight, your blood pressure drops. Some have proposed GLP-1 receptors in the heart that have anti-apoptotic effects. So if you get ischemic, your heart doesn't Heart cells don't die as much. Sounds good. Sign me up. But they increase heart rate. And most cardiologists feel that anything that increases heart rate has to have a negative impact on cardiovascular events or mortality. I think you're born with a certain number of heartbeats in your life, and you waste them too. No, just kidding. But, but, but the, 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 the trend is that if, if a medication increases heart rate, that you might expect, at least be concerned that it could increase cardiovascular events. So again, net-net, you know, where would this uh, place a patient in terms of cardiovascular risk? It's not quite uh, clear. Then in 2007, the Avandia, those of you that were in practice in 2007, remember when the New York Times published their article that was based on the New England Journal article suggesting that rosiglitazone, which was a TZD that was supposed to have miraculous cardiovascular benefits, actually might increase cardiovascular events. So this really shocked the diabetes community because not only couldn't we prove that glucose control improved cardiovascular risk, but now we had a drug that we thought by itself would improve cardiovascular risk that could actually have the opposite effect. And that led to the FDA saying, okay, industry, let's put the brakes on all these new diabetes drugs because there was huge number of medications in the pipeline of all these pharmaceutical companies about to come to market. So the FDA said, okay, let's do this. Let's agree that your drug, we understand it's going to come on the market mainly to lower glucose, but your drug should not increase cardiovascular events. Let's just agree that that is a good thing. We don't even want you to reduce cardiovascular events. 
just show me, because I don't want to go through this Avandia fiasco anymore, show me, this is the FDA talking, show me that your drug is at least safe in a patient population that is at enormous cardiovascular risk. So the guidance basically stated, I don't want to get into too many of the details, but suffice to say that the companies had to demonstrate that the hazard ratio for cardiovascular events was as close to 1.00 as possible or less. They'll take less, obviously, that's a reduction. And the upper bound of the confidence interval, which just tells you how certain you are of that hazard ratio, has to be under certain limits. Suffice to say that this type of study requires thousands of patients studied over at least two, if not three or four years. You have to have substantial number of events to be confident in that hazard ratio. So this has led to um, a lot of uh, studies that, for the drugs that were coming out now in 2009, 2010, a cottage industry of these huge cardiovascular trials, which are just coming to fruition in the past couple of years. So these are the seven drugs that I talked about. And the dividing point is the pre- and post-guidance. Pre-guidance, there, these studies weren't done um, uh, over a longer period of time. There were glucose control studies, but not studies looking at a specific drug. Um, they were short studies. They really didn't meet the FDA criteria because there was no FDA criteria at that time. But from looking back at the studies that were done, insulin was probably neutral. SUs were probably neutral. Metformin might have a benefit, but the uh, robustness of that data is very, very low. Small trials, three, 400 patients. We really don't know if metformin has a cardiovascular benefit. And the TZDs, um, it's very confusing. Rosiglitazone ultimately was vindicated as being neutral, did not increase cardiovascular risk. <clears throat> Pioglitazone, which is the only TZD that's widely, still widely available, probably had a modest improvement in cardiovascular risk with the caveat about heart failure. So there was no home-run drug pre-guidance. And the DPP-4s, GLP-1s, and SGLT-2 inhibitors were now submitted to these uh, new regulations uh, from, from the FDA. And this is the uh, landscape of uh, diabetes clinical trials. At one point, I think globally, there were 200,000 patients involved in these clinical trials. DPP-4s, GLP-1s, SGLT-2s. I'm not going to get into the DPP-4 trials because these were just neutral. Again, lots of frustration in the diabetes community because the DPP-4s, you know, perhaps not as much as the GLP-1s, but uh, experts, global experts, felt that the DPP-4 inhibitors could actually be the holy grail. They had no hypoglycemia, very gentle drug, well-tolerated, no weight gain, maybe some uh, subtle cardiovascular benefits, but no, they were completely neutral. So as far as the FDA was concerned, this was a good thing, right? These were safe drugs. They did not increase cardiovascular. So we have a lot of certainty that when you use, when you prescribe citagliptin or linagliptin or saxagliptin, that you're at least not increasing cardiovascular events. Well, let's, let's go to the, the two drug categories that have some interesting cardiovascular data, and then I'll tell you about some new data regarding the TZDs. So this is how an SGLT2 uh, transporter works. It's situated here on the luminal surface of the proximal nephron. 
and it entrains a glucose molecule and a sodium molecule into the cell, and that's then excreted out into the interstitium. So it's a way that the body has of reclaiming glucose because you filter glucose. If your plasma glucose concentration is 95, you're going to have 95 milligrams per deciliter in the glomerular filtrate. And if you don't get it back into the body, you're going to, you know, that's not good. You lose calories and you will die. So the body has to reclaim all the glucose. So most individuals, unless you have a genetic defect in SGLT2, which has been uh, found, uh, something called familial renal glucosuria, which is how the transporter was discovered. These patients just are glucosuric all the time. They never get fat. They never get diabetes. Interesting. But when you have a functioning SGLT2, you resorb most of the glucose. SGLT1 is responsible for about 10%, and you have no glucose in your urine. If you block the SGLT2 transporter with an inhibitor, uh, you excrete glucose. It's very simple. It's a little bizarre, because most of my career has been spent trying to prevent glucosuria, but here we're inducing glucosuria. And you have to have, tell patients that if they have the urinalyses done, Somebody's going to call them saying, oh, my God, you must have out-of-control diabetes. And just relax, I'm on a SGLT2 inhibitor. You lose about uh, 70 to 80 grams of, glucose, uh, of uh, glucose per day, and that translates to about 300 calories per day. Yet the weight loss, as I'll show you, is very modest. So if you do the math, 3,500 calories to the pound, you know, within 6.8 years, people would disappear if that kept up, right, because you're continuing losing glucose. And there are obviously uh, mechanisms in place that prevent that. So people lose about two kilos, and then it stops. You eat more, actually. That's been demonstrated. So this is what the transporters do. They bring the glucose threshold from about 180. So if I get any normal individual up to 180, they'll start to urinate glucose. In diabetic patients, it's actually higher. It's about 240 which is, again, why I included the kidney on the pathophysiology slide. They're not excreting as much glucose as they should. And with an SGLT2 inhibitor, you're dropping it to about 70 or even lower. But you don't get hypoglycemia because you have other compensatory mechanisms to prevent hypoglycemia. So this is what they do. Their modest A1C lowers, about 0.6 to 0.8, nothing to write home about. They lower weight, as I mentioned, 2 kilos, but again, not much more than that. And they have an effect on blood pressure, about 4 over 2 reduction, because you lose sodium. It's an osmotic diuretic, and you lose a little sodium. So things are good. Not doesn't look like a home run, but it's probably not harmful to the heart. And before the cardiovascular outcome trials, this is you know, perhaps the risk-to-benefit ratio. You know, lots of benefits that I mentioned, modest mostly. And there are some risks. People pee more. If you give this to a gentleman with BPH who has three times nocturia, they're not going to like you. So it'll get worse. It increases the risk of genital yeast infections. Makes sense if you know how the drug works, right? Some studies, not all, have shown increase in UTIs. Your GFR goes down a few points initially because it's a plasma contraction, but it then it stabilizes. They found increased risk of DKA when they use these drugs in type 1s. They work in type 1s. I don't suggest you use them in type 1s because of this side effect. It's, we still don't understand why that occurs, but it does. About 10% of type 1s who use these medications have ketosis and, and a few other side effects. But again, net-net, it's not quite clear 
until the clinical trials are done. So this is the EMPAREG trial. Uh, this is the uh, large empagliflozin uh, study uh, that was the first to demonstrate a cardiovascular benefit of any diabetes drug. And therefore, it's a landmark trial uh, because to date, in, when this was presented in uh, late 2015, no drug um, had in a large cardiovascular outcome trial had been demonstrated to show uh, a benefit. So the, these trials are set up where you randomize patients to placebo at either one or two doses of the study drug. Here we use two doses. And the primary outcome is MACE, so that's major adverse cardiovascular events, which would be MI, stroke, and cardiovascular death. And to get into the trial, you had to have established cardiovascular disease, which is important because the benefits that I'll show you cannot be cut and pasted to a primary prevention cohort because we don't know. This is a cardiovascular disease population of patients. And um, the baseline characteristics would be what you would expect. Lots of metformin, a fair amount of insulin being used, lots of evidence-based therapies, older, obese, some CKD, and lots of cardiovascular disease. Not surprising. This is what you get in these trials when you throw out the net for diabetic patients who want to participate in trials who have cardiovascular disease. And this is what the primary outcome was. Again, this is three-point MACE. And this was a 14% relative risk reduction. The absolute risk reduction is about 2 to 3%. But the relative risk reduction was 14%. Again, we'll take it. It's going in the right direction. But definitely not, a again, a home run. What was more tantalizing was the components of three-point maze. So here we have the cardiovascular death component, which was hugely decreased. 38% risk reduction. You don't even get this with statins. I mean, there's very few things that affect impact mortality. All-cause mortality was even decreased by 32%. Now, again, we're talking about relative risk. The absolute risk was, again, about 3%. But, you know, if you were in that 3%, that's a good thing. This is a very hard outcome. You can't argue about death. Now, the other components of three-point MACE straddled the line of unity. So MIs went in the right direction, but not significant. Stroke went in the wrong direction. We're not exactly sure why, but most of the stroke events occurred after the patients had stopped the study drug. So when you take patients 30 days off study drug and include only those patients that were taking study drug, the hazard ratio is about 1.04, so essentially neutral. Can't explain why this occurred. The other important finding was this decrease in hospitalization for heart failure. I already mentioned how important heart failure is as an outcome in clinical trials. The TZDs had increases in heart failure. And here, now this makes more sense, at least to me, in terms of it being a diuretic, having diuretic properties, let's put it that way, and impacting heart failure, which is fluid overload. The cardiovascular mortality, we have a little hard time explaining why that occurred because only 10% of our patients had heart failure. So, again, you had a 35% reduction. And one thing I forgot to point out, which is denoted by the circle, both for cardiovascular death and particularly for, cardiovascular, for heart failure hospitalization, was the rapidity of the separation of the event curves. So those of you that either have participated in cardiovascular outcome trials or have read those papers know that 
the separation of curves in hypertension trials, statin trials, is typically at 12 months. That's when you see the curves begin to diverge. Something is happening very early with this drug that, again, we don't quite understand that is causing the effect to be present at three months for mortality and at one month for heart failure. This is a rapid effect. And if you dichotomize the patients into those with, I'm sorry, with on the right and without heart failure, you get a similar reduction. Uh, most of the patients were in this category where the event rates are relatively low and only 10% actually had heart failure. But the trend is the same. So the, the P for interaction for heterogeneity is neutral. So this means that both of these numbers are essentially statistically the same. So this drug not only prevents the deterioration of heart failure, but also prevents heart failure in people without heart failure. We've looked at this a little bit more closely, uh, separating patients into three groups. These are patients without heart failure. So we've eliminated the 10% with heart failure and focusing on the 90% with heart, without heart failure. And we use the ABC risk score for heart failure, and we separated patients into low, high, and very high risk for heart failure. And you can see that the trend is, is the same. Obviously, the event rates are going to be higher in those at very high risk. But the cardiologists are very interested in this compound class because of, because of these effects. And there are actually some heart failure trials going on now uh, with two of the compounds uh, that are recruiting both diabetic and non-diabetic patients. Think about that, the glucose-lowering drug in non-diabetic individuals. The second trial was CANVAS. This is Canagliflozin, in which is the most popular uh, prescribed SGLT2 inhibitor in the world, um, or at least in the United States. And here you had the precise, you rarely see this in clinical trials, 14% risk reduction in two large trials. This was even larger at 10,000 patients. Now here the um, event rates were more, less labile, let's put it that way, than in, in Empereg. So you had consistency of CV death, MI, and stroke, and you got significance because of the numbers. But you didn't have significant reduction in CV death by itself, as we did in Empereg. Not sure why, but you know, they're two different drugs. And the problem with Canvas is that you also had a doubling of amputations. So again, getting back to this risk-benefit ratio, you're preventing cardiovascular events, but you know, people are losing toes. And most of my patients want to leave this world with as many toes as they came in with. That's an important outcome for patients with diabetes. We've looked at the Empereg uh, data, and we cannot find a signal for amputations. Maybe we didn't collect the data properly because this is all post hoc. That's an important caveat. But we don't see any signal in Empereg. So I can't tell you why you see this difference between the two drugs. So when we uh, set up Empereg, uh, we uh, had the opportunity to uh, publish a review article a year before the trial comes out, certainly before we knew of the results. And uh, it was a kind of an opinion piece saying, if the SGLT2 inhibitors do reduce cardiovascular events, we didn't know that they would, these might be the mechanisms by which the drugs can do this. And we were completely wrong because we were focused on athero right? Diabetes and CBD is athero. So we talked about, you know, blood pressure and insulin resistance and glucose, and clearly 
uh, when you look at least with Emperec, when you see that MI and stroke didn't do too much and it was really mortality and a lot of heart failure and rapidity of effect within two to three months, it doesn't sound like athero. So the, there's four theories now as to what's going on with the SGLT2 inhibitors, and I, I will tell you we have no clue. But the theories are that this is simply a diuretic effect, although most cardiologists say that diuretics shouldn't reduce mortality, although you can't really do a randomized trial to no diuretic in a person with pulmonary edema, can you? But inferentially from trials, they don't think that diuretics, they improve symptoms but not mortality. There's an interesting ketone hypothesis. Remember, the drugs can increase DKA rates in type 1. So you actually get a micromolar increase in beta-hydroxybutyrate when you use these drugs. And this is well beyond my understanding, but the vascular biologists feel that beta-hydroxybutyrate is a more efficient fuel source for the heart. And the heart preferentially likes ketones and is a little, a little bit more efficient, can generate more ATP when it has ketones as opposed to free fatty acids and glucose. Not sure I buy it, but that's a theory. There's a renal theory that this drug has important renal benefits that I'm not going to discuss, and that might impact the heart. And then there's this interesting uh, theory, mainly in animal models, that the drug might inhibit the sodium-hydrogen exchanger. And when you do that, you alter sodium-calcium balance inside cardiac cells, and that is also preferential uh, for uh, a more efficient pump function of the heart. The only data I can show you is this is a post hoc analysis we did where we took all the covariates that we had in the Empereg trial and we controlled them individually to see if we can move the hazard ratio toward one. So the way these are done, this is statistical manipulations, but you control for A1C or blood pressure, LDL, and if the hazard ratio moves from 0.62 Toward one, that means the, the, the factor is a mediator. For instance, in the DCCT, when you control for A1C, the benefits of being in the tight control group on retinopathy disappears. Logical, right? A1C was the mechanism by which, or at least, you know, glucose control. So what we saw here is that nothing moved the needle except for one thing, which was hematocrit. So you get a 3% increase in hematocrit when you use an SGLT2 inhibitor. We think this is a plasma contraction, and this explains 50% of the benefit. Not 100%, but 50% of the benefit. Some say that it could have an effect on hematopoiesis as well. Although from medical school, I can't understand how a 3% increase in your crit from 40 to 43, or 41 to 44, can increase oxygen delivery that much to improve cardiovascular mortality. So we think it's a plasma contraction effect, that it's the volume hypothesis is what's, is what's going on. The GLP-1 receptor agonists are another uh, drug that has been shown to have cardiovascular benefits. These are the injectables. Um, they serve to stimulate alpha cells and beta cells. They stimulate more insulin secretion from beta cells and basically suppress, as opposed to stimulate, alpha cells to produce less glucagon. They also slow gastric emptying, and they have myriad effects that control glucose and uh, insulin and glucagon. The DPP-4 inhibitors are an inhibitor of the enzyme that chews up one's own 
incretin hormones, GLP-1 and another one in, uh, that's called GIP. So it's like a double negative. If you inhibit the enzyme that degrades your peptide, you have higher levels of the peptide. But the, you get much higher levels of the peptide when you in, inject these pharmacological doses of liraglutide, exenatide, et cetera. But it's all the same system. And the DPP-4 inhibitors were the ones that I showed you were neutral. So when you inhibit that enzyme, you just get more incretin hormones. So in terms of drug development in the incretin field, uh, there are two avenues. One is to inhibit your own degradation, and the other is to inject large doses of an agonist that is resistant to DPP-4. That's the two strategies. And GLP-1s have been proposed to also have many beneficial effects on the cardiovascular system, but again, we've, seen, we've heard this tune before, right? Just because in animal models the drug might have a uh, cardioprotective effect doesn't mean it's going to translate to uh, benefits in terms of clinical trials. The drugs do have potent effects on A1C. This competes now with insulin, down about 1 to 1.5%. Also, beneficial effects on weight, on average about 2 to 3 kilos. Semaglutide, which is a weekly uh, GLP-1, has probably the most prominent effects on A1C uh, and on body weight. This is a weekly injectable that is, um, I'll show you some data on semaglutide. So this is the first GLP-1 trial, uh, curiously very similar to what we saw with GLP-1. So there's kind of a recurring theme here. This is the 13% risk reduction. And here, in terms of three-point MACE, you had a significant reduction in CV death, um, non-significant reduction in MI and stroke, but again, the MACE outcome was 13%. So here's another drug category, at least a drug that could reduce cardiovascular events. Heart failure hospitalization went in the right direction, but was not statistically significant. So you don't see this prominent effect that you do with the SGLT2 inhibitors. And then semaglutide, this is the weekly. Uh, this is a smaller trial. Uh, this had a larger effect on MACE, 26%, and it was driven by MI and this um, huge effect on stroke. Not sure why the differential here is more for stroke, but those are the data. But zero effect on CV death. The more studies you look at, the more you realize that these uh, components of MACE are very labile. So you have to wait for three or four trials and do a meta-analysis before you really understand um, the effects of these medications. So uh, we talked about neutrality here, the positive trials here. Uh, Elixa, which was a Lixizenotide study, was actually neutral. Uh, leader and sustained with liraglutide and semaglutide respectively were positive. And recently, Excel, which was an exenatide, uh, long, uh, um, slow release, just missed. I mean, their, their p-value was like 0.051. But, you know, if you're going to be rigid in terms of your interpretation of these trials, it was a neutral trial. So there is significant differences between these uh, GLP-1 agonists that we have not seen thus far with the DPP-4s or the SGLT2 inhibitors. So this is just a summary of these two important drug classes because they are now uh, being, uh, as, I'll, as I'll show you, they're now being included in revised clinical guidelines as preferred drugs when patients have cardiovascular disease. That's, a, that's really important, and I'll, I'll show you the updated guidelines in, in just a bit. Now, before I close, I just wanted to update you. I spoke to the endocrine group yesterday about our IRIS trial, but I think this is important in the mix 
But because it's a non-diabetes trial, it's not going to impact the use of pioglitazone in diabetic patients. So this is um, the TZD stores. These are nuclear receptor agonists that affect a lot of things, which is many good things and maybe many bad things in terms of altering gene expression, such as weight gain and fluid retention and bone fragility. So this drug does have a lot of warts without question. But we conducted the IRIS study, which is the insulin resistance intervention after stroke trial. And this is randomizing about 4,000 patients with stroke who don't have diabetes, that's important, but have insulin resistance. And we randomized them to placebo or pioglitazone and followed them for five years. And as you might expect, many of these patients have prediabetes, right? We excluded the diabetic patients, but we recruited insulin-resistant patients, so you're going to get a lot of prediabetic patients. About 50% had prediabetes. And this is our primary outcome, a 24% reduction in essentially MACE. In using a diabetes drug in a non-diabetic population. ACS went down and stroke went down individually as primary components of MACE. And this compares favorably to other standard therapies in post-stroke patients, aspirin, ARBs, and statins, and also prevents diabetes, about a 52% prevention of diabetes, although that was known from trials uh, for, for several years now with other TZDs. So neutral, positive, all over the place. What are the impact on these, on guidelines? And you remember that the TZD trial, because it's non-diabetic patient, was not on the previous slide. So this is the prevailing algorithm. This is the one that is revised every three years, and this is under review right now to get revised. But the ADA comes up with um, yearly updates to tweak it here and there based on the studies for that year. And it, it's, a, you know, it's a different color scheme. It looks a little different, but it's essentially the same. It's monotherapy with metformin and then something else. But for the first time this year, they said the following, that if you have atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, then you should be using an SGLT2 or GLP-1, one that's proven to reduce these events in large clinical trials. And if you don't, then you go back to 2015 where you can use whatever you want. You can use a GLP-1 and an SGLT-2, but you should not expect a cardiovascular benefit because the studies have really not been done in that population. Most of the studies have been done in a secondary prevention population. So this is, I think, big news because for the first time we have good, solid clinical trial evidence saying that we can impact events and in some circumstances mortality based on the type of drug and the type of patient, which we were never able to do before. Uh, in diabetes. And it's going to take a few years for this message to get out there, but the nature of these drugs and the characteristics of your patient should more simply lead to a acceptable, a widely accepted drug choice as opposed to doing whatever we want based on other patient characteristics. So this is the proposed consensus report. This is now going to be the revised set of uh, algorithms or guidelines from the ADA. Not much is changing. Metformin is still first, but they're going to make a very prominent recommendation that if you have CVD, you should use a GLP-1 or an SGLT-2, and they're going to actually state, even though it's a small component of the trial, they're going to say 
that if you have heart failure, you should favor an SGLT2. Even though there was only 10% of our patients had heart failure in these studies, they're going to they're push the envelope a little bit. And the other thing they're going to say, we didn't really address this, but if you need an injectable, the first injectable should be not insulin, but a GLP-1. That is a dramatic change from previous guidelines where we said, well, insulin could be used, you could use a GLP-1. The ADA is now convinced with the EASD, the European group, that the GLP-1s are safer, less hypoglycemia, less weight gain, and as good as insulin. So let me summarize. Um, correct, unfortunately, correcting the major metabolic abnormality of diabetes, which last time we checked was hyperglycemia, does not have a significant impact on cardiovascular events, which is the major complication of diabetes. And until recently, individual therapies used to reduce glucose, despite many of them having benefits on you know, cardiovascular risk factors, haven't really shown consistent benefits on cardiovascular events, you know, things that are really important to patients. So with all these controversies, the FDA in 2008 and was enacted in 2009 mandated these CVOTs, cardiovascular outcome trials, to be done to demonstrate safety. And if you add a couple more thousand patients, you can actually power the study for efficacy or effectiveness on cardiovascular outcomes. And the first series of these with the DPP-4 inhibitors showed safety, but not necessarily effectiveness. But now we have um, three categories, perhaps two, if you're really interpreting IRIS as a non-diabetes trial, which it, which it is, but I think it reflects on what the drug can do in diabetes patients. SGLT2s, CVDEF, heart failure hospitalization with empagliflozin. Canagliflozin is kind of a mixed picture because of the amputation risk. I'm not sure exactly why that is. And then two GLP-1s, Lyra and semaglutide, both have an impact on MACE. Lyra mostly with cardiovascular death, SEMA mostly with stroke. I think PIO, and this was the topic of our discussion yesterday, I think PIO should be poised for rejuvenation or reincarnation, I think we said yesterday, because um, it is cheap. It's In Connecticut, it's $12 a month. I think we did some statistics yesterday, and it's, it's almost 100-fold less expensive than a GLP-1. And I think if you use it judiciously at low doses and watch for edema, I think it's pretty safe. But who knows? <coughs> who knows what's going to happen in the future? Um, but I think uh, it is true that these large CV outcome trials just over the past two to three years are beginning to radically change how we approach glucose lowering in patients with diabetes and cardiovascular disease. So I thank you for your attention, and I'll be happy to take any questions. Yes. So I'm Charlie Hopley. I'm with the renal section. And in the renal world, we're actually very excited about the SGLT2 inhibitors. And if you look at the data, certainly it's not as robust, but it has a very similar kidney profile to the ACE inhibitors right. in that you experience kind of an updrift in GFR. But over time, they're, we're hoping that these are renal protective. Yeah. You know, yes, it has enrollments diuretic, but really what we're thinking is that when you block sodium uptake in the proximal tubule, you increase sodium delivery to the distal tubule, which in turn 
causes constriction in the afferent arteriole, which is the opposite of how ACE inhibitors, you know, lower right. pressure. The problem is that I think the FDA restricts use of these medicines in GFRs less than 45. Right. And so that cuts out a whole group of patients that... They might really need them. Really yeah. So we, we're going to need to work with nephrologists like you to figure this out. But that's, a, that's an important... So I didn't go into the renal benefits, but as you pointed out, it's about a 40% reduction in CKD progression. And with, with the Empereg study, it wasn't just albuminuria. And also, I believe in, in Canvas, it wasn't just albuminuria. It was harder outcomes. Like albuminuria would be like, you know, silent MI for cardiologists. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's great, I mean, fine, but it's not an event. So we showed reductions in the, we did uh, doubling of creatinine. I think Canvas did 40% decrease in GFR, which is very similar. Um, renal uh, failure, uh, the need for renal replacement therapy, uh, which is important. Numbers are very small, but it was, it was clearly in favor of empagliflozin and, and renal death. So when you put the composite of renal death, need for renal replacement therapy, and a doubling of serum creatinine, the um, uh, point estimate was 0.61, so 39% risk reduction. That is very important, particularly for uh, not only for the patient's health, but for cost, because if you can even, you tell me, if you can delay dialysis for even a year or two, I think that would have enormous impact on the healthcare system. Um, and uh, I do think that there is a conundrum with the GFR. But it's interesting, I don't know if you caught this, but we were able to recruit an Empereg down to a GFR of 30. So even though by the books you shouldn't use a drug under 45, we were allowed by the FDA to recruit down to 30. And when we looked at that subgroup, people between 30 and 45, only a couple hundred patients, so you have to take this with a grain of salt, the cardiovascular benefits were as prominent as in the patients with better renal function. So personally, I use a drug down to 30. The problem is that it doesn't have much of a glucose-lowering effect. So you don't, because if you don't have glomerular filtration, you can't get rid of glucose. So the A1C lowering is paltry. It's like 0.3%. But the blood pressure effect, for some reason, is still there. And the cardiovascular benefits and the renal benefits are still there. So I think we really need to re-adjudicate the, these guidelines in terms of, um, in terms of what is a safe um, a limit. I, I told you that there are two heart failure trials going on now, recruiting diabetic and non-diabetic patients. There are th three renal trials going on, two of which are recruiting patients with and without diabetes. And I believe one is recruiting down to a GFR of 20, if I'm not incorrect, and one is recruiting down to a GFR of 25. So those are underway now. So we should have, I think by 2022, we should have information. But I agree. I, I want to speak to nephrology colleagues. They're very interested in this drug class as maybe the next bastion of renal protective agents. Jack. Silvio, thank you for two wonderful days of teaching. And I'm just curious for your thoughts about the fact that there's so many type 2 patients and the cost of the treatment. How should endocrinologists and primary care providers interact with these patients? Specifically, who should see these patients and, you know, and use these uh, guidelines? Well, uh, the guidelines are really meant for primary care, right? I mean, that's, that's why subspecialty societies issue these guidelines, is that we realize that in primary care, family practice, general internal medicine, um, they don't have the luxury of being able to focus on diabetes. So they're dealing with osteoporosis and depression and, and COPD, et cetera. 
the guidelines are specifically meant for uh, application in a primary care environment. In terms of who treats these patients, I mean, you do the math, right? There's about 77,000 uh, of us. Uh, probably a third of those 7,000 are research or administrative. So the FTEs of endocrinologists is probably more like 4,500. And there's 30 million type 2s, or, or diabetics 95% are type. So if endocrinologists saw all the patients who had diabetes, I think well, our views would be awesome, Andy. <laughs> but, but you probably have to see a patient. I did the math once, and it was like you'd have to see a patient 24 hours a day, uh, every six seconds. <laughs> we could do it, Jack. We could do it. But obviously, it's not. It's not. It's not. It's, to do that, so. <laughs> that's, that's hurtful. Right? But, uh, but, uh, but seriously, the, uh, the diabetes is a primary care disease. And I think, um, I think it's easier, I, I believe it's easier to treat when you have good data. Right? In, in the hypertension world, we all are reasonably good. People, patients take their pills, we're pretty good at managing hypertension in an evidence-based fashion. You know, diuretics and, and CCBs and, and ACEs and ARBs. I think we're getting to that stage with that. It's taken a long time. I mean, it's embarrassing how long it's taken to come up with evidence-based strategies in diabetic patients. But I think once the heart failure and the diabetes and the CKD trials are done, we'll not only have uh, avenues to send patients down in terms of atherosclerotic heart disease, but we'll have clear avenues for heart failure and for um, uh, CKD. So these uh, patients will get a, you know, one drug. I think metformin will probably always be there. It's going to be hard to unseat metformin as, as primary therapy, although some people are talking about that as well. But that's going to take a huge trial. It will always be metformin. And then the second drug is going to be determined by their underlying risk without question. So I think it's going to be easier to manage diabetes patients because there won't be a lot of question as to what drug to use. You have this, you use that. But 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 we didn't talk about cost. We mentioned it a little bit with pioglitazone, but but these drugs are crazy expensive, right? <clears throat> I think that at least in my state, empagliflozin, um, which is becoming more and more popular because of Empareg. Um, is somewhere in the range of $450 per month. So think about that. That's about $15 a day for just, and these patients are often taking other pills, et cetera. So there's a couple of tricks. There's nobody from the company here, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a trick is that I didn't show you this, but remember we studied two doses? We studied 10 and then 25 milligrams. There was absolutely no difference, both A1C Maybe a little bit on blood pressure, but not a lot. No difference in heart failure, CKD, or cardiovascular mortality between the 10 and 25 milligram dose. So guess what I do? Yeah, so you prescribe the 25 because they're single price, the single, um, I forget the terminology the pharmaceutical industry uses, but essentially 10 and 25 are the same price. Flat pricing, I think, is the term they use. You prescribe the 25, you cut it in half, I know 12 and a half hasn't been studied, but take it from me. You can use a 12 and a half. And that, now, you t now you have a 7 or $8 a day drug. Still a lot, don't get me wrong, but it is a, a strategy that you can use to make it more um, affordable for your patients. 
But again, the science is a science, the cost is a cost. At some point, these are going to be generics. I mean, do you, do you think about what ACE inhibitors cost anymore? No, because they're all generic. So we'll get to that stage, but it's going to take at least five or six more years before the patent life expire. Great. Thank you so much Thank you. for giving us the presentation today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.